0: Hi, I'm Greg Levine, a partner and chair of the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group at Ropes & Gray. Welcome to Non-Binding Guidance, a podcast series from Ropes & Gray focused on current trends in FDA regulatory law as well as other important developments affecting the life sciences industry. I'm here today with my colleague, Lincoln Sang, a new Ropes & Gray partner based in London and head of our European Life Sciences Practice. Lincoln, you and I have known each other for more than 15 years and I'm just absolutely <laughs> thrilled that you have joined the firm and so excited to have you on our podcast today and introduce you to to our podcast audience. On today's podcast, we'll, we'll talk about your career path, as well as your thoughts on the effects of Brexit and other developments that are happening in the UK and in Europe. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your background?
1: Uh, thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to uh, be part of uh, the the Roots and Gray family, and uh, uh, it's good to reconnect with you and uh, work with you as uh, as a colleague again. Um, My original training was in pharmacy, uh, toxicology, and cancer pharmacology, focusing on new molecular uh, targets for uh, new anti-cancer drugs. Uh, Early in my career, I worked in National Health Service in the UK. I spent uh, nearly 13 years Uh, with the UK Regulatory Authority, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority, and was appointed head of uh, biologicals and biotech with uh, the responsibility of uh, overseeing the safety, quality, and efficacy of all biological products marketed in the UK as well as, at that time, the European Union, such as uh, vaccines, uh, blood products, and biotech products. And I was also involved in a number of key national vaccine uh, immunization programs and uh, certain high profile public health matters, including my uh, involvement in the, in the BSE inquiry uh, and uh, vaccine and blood product safety. And uh, during my tenure with the UK agency, I, I was appointed by the UK government uh, to serve as an advisor to uh, the European Medicines Agency the European Commission, uh, the European Council, the Council of Europe, and uh, the World Health Organization uh, in a, a number of legislative public policy matters. I worked briefly on secondment to the government legal services uh, involved in legislative drafting, policy, and litigation. And um, I spent nearly 18 years, or over 18 years in fact, uh, with another international law firm based in London, where I practice as a partner for um, specializing in matters concerning regulatory compliance, enforcement, and litigation, as well as market access.
0: That's quite an impressive background and, and obviously um, shows why we're so so excited to have you and bring that experience and, and expertise and the breadth and depth of that expertise too, to Ropes & Gray. You had quite an extensive and successful career in government, and now you've been in the private legal practice for, for for quite some time. How, how would you say your background, both in government and working in a private law firm, how, how does that inform the way you practice?
1: I've worked in this area, in this sector, for over 30 years now. So the experience I've gained over the, the, the last 30-plus years in public and private sector, certainly from, from my perspective, has shaped uh, the way I practice law, as well as public policy matters and also sharpened my ability to um, to deal with uh, novel cutting edge uh, uh, regulatory legal issues um, and issues that will be of importance to clients uh, handling commercially sensitive matters. Uh, those issues include the way we manage crisis and manage risks uh, relating to regulatory compliance, the way we strategize uh, regulatory approval process and how we're going to craft, for example, the terms of the conditions of use in in Europe. Uh, There's a document called Summary of Product Characteristics. That's quite an important document because uh, the conditions set out in the SMPC will have tremendous impact on the way you determine how you're going to get the, the market access approval downstream. A negotiation with uh, uh, the health uh, technology uh, uh, authorities based on your determination of uh, the product profile, the therapeutic position, and for you to negotiate as, uh, the, the, the price uh, for the purpose of market access. So I think that certainly from my perspective and in discussion with uh, our clients, um, they found it beneficial uh, to have my insight. Uh, to gauge uh, the attitude uh, of the regulators as well as policymakers, uh, to provide, uh, most importantly, practical solutions uh, for some business-sensitive legal questions.
0: Thanks, Lincoln. Yes, well, we can see how that could be of tremendous value to clients. And I know you, you've also continued to maintain contacts with government officials throughout Europe and, and the UK, so quite quite a value to to clients. Let's turn to talk a little bit about Brexit. This has been quite a, a drama. Looking at it from the outside, you know, from from our side of the Atlantic, I guess the original vote was in 2016. It's been almost five years now, and there seems to have been a lot of uncertainty and back and forth on how things were going to look. And in the end, you know, I guess the the biggest questions for from from my perspective and clients has been how different will things be once Brexit is fully resolved versus what was, you know, in effect before. So could you enlighten us on what's happening there and how things are currently and how, how you think this plays out now?
1: Since the, uh, the referendum uh, in the UK, uh, I was heavily involved uh, in the preparation for Brexit and uh, representing industry uh, and trade associations, uh, how to ensure business continuity. and And also, at the same time, I still continue to serve as an advisor to UK government as well so I I have my own perspective about the Brexit I, I think that um, you you you're right in in pointing out the the effect and the impact of Brexit it has uh, uh, caused widespread disruption as one may characterize that in terms of the relationship between the UK and the EU regulatory systems but um, Hearing what uh, the UK government has uh, done and also hearing what the MHRA, the UK authorities, has published, I think that the the overall is that the the UK departure from Europe uh, will become a catalyst for change uh, uh, in the UK. In the way that the agency, uh, as well as the UK government, will have to deal with uh, medicines and medical devices and how they will uh, be regulated uh, under the single body of the MHRA. Obviously, the UK government and the MHRA uh, would like to focus on a smooth transition or transfer to the new uh, system as the UK MHRA becomes a standalone uh, regulatory authority, separating the tie with uh, the European Union. At the same time, I think Brexit gives the UK uh, government and agency to take a fresher look, more fundamental uh, examination of the the, uh, the principles on which uh, medicines uh, regulation and, and also regulation of medical devices uh, will be based uh, in the future. You might have already heard um, uh, most recently um, the parliament has passed uh, a new piece of legislation, uh, Medicines and Medical Devices Act. Essentially, the act will give the UK ministers and the UK government to promote innovation, uh, reflecting the policy already published uh, by the UK government to focus on life sciences sector as an important business pillar in the UK following the publication of the life sciences uh, uh, sector's strategy review. And one particular element that, that I can glean from various uh, publications from the UK government as well as from the UK regulatory authorities, uh, including the, uh, the, the, uh, the health uh, technology uh, authorities such as NICE, greater focus is now placed on uh, patient voice at the very heart of uh, regulation and market access. Uh, whether in the area of clinical trials, uh, product development, or safety monitoring. And there is quite a, a, sh- a big shift uh, in terms of how we regulate uh, uh, medicines or medical devices or any healthcare products in the UK. Now, obviously, that uh, with the recent event of COVID uh, pandemic, uh, the impact of COVID 19 cannot be underestimated in terms of how the UK will have to. Um, initiate a a regulatory transformation to make risk-proportionate scientific judgments uh, in the context of COVID-19, particularly in relation to uh, how they can respond uh, uh, more positively in relation to uh, new therapeutics, new diagnostics for them to be introduced into um, the national health system. And I think that MHRA should be praise for what they have done um, in a very positive and responsive manner to initiate a rolling uh, um, uh, regulatory review to allow actually the first vaccines to be introduced uh, in the UK, um, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, which was in collaboration with the uh, BioNTech uh, manufacturer in Germany. And if you look at the most recent uptake uh, figure from the UK, uh, we have vaccinated over 53% of the, uh, the UK population, and uh, with a significant reduction in the COVID infections across the uh, the, the, the UK. So that is a very significant uh, shift in terms of the way we regulate and the way we introduce uh, new medicines and therapeutics uh, post Brexit and also post COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Very interesting. That, you know, some of those trends, the increased focus on patient voice, and then the lessons from the COVID nineteen pandemic, which are going to be many going uh, going forward, are also things that um, are heavily on, on the minds of the FDA and and those of us who work uh, with FDA regulated entities over here as well.
1: One one important uh, element that I think is important to note is that since uh, January twenty twenty one. The UK MHRA has introduced uh, a new uh, pathway to speed up approval and also market access of innovative uh, medicines. The pathway is called the Innovative Licensing and Access Pathway. Um, the pathway is actually quite interesting system for people to, to consider because uh, this is the first time that the, the, the UK Regulatory Authority will create a, a new process for it to work more closely in collaboration with um, uh, bodies responsible for determining uh, market access conditions, such as uh, the National Institute for uh, Clinical Care and Excellence, so-called NICE, and as well as the National Health Service, in order to ensure that uh, there is convergency in relation to how to develop a a, a process and uh, a pathway for new innovative therapeutics to be introduced in a timely manner. So there will be greater use of the same uh, data set as agree with uh, the MHRA through this innovative um, regulatory pathway to allow this same data set to determine the market access conditions and also to guide um, the market access agreement and in what circumstances the product uh, will be used uh, within the National Health Service to benefit, most importantly, uh, patients in public
0: health. That sounds like quite an interesting program. Uh, the FDA as well has been developing a variety of programs, both in the um, drug side and as well as the devices to try to facilitate the path to market for innovative uh, products and and also to to some extent to try to coordinate that with some of the payment and reimbursement systems. But uh, obviously, a lot that regulators across the globe uh, potentially can you can learn from from each other, and um, you know, try to bring the most innovative thinking and the things that work, and figure out what works best, and and try to coordinate that over time.
1: I agree with you. I think that uh, that is a very important aspect over the last two or three decades in increasing international collaboration amongst uh, regulatory bodies, uh, of, such as uh, the uh, creation of the International Council for, Council for Harmonization, um, um, have paved the way for a, a, a greater collaboration uh, coordination in many uh, public health issues, and I probably see that the, the, this will this trend will continue in 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 the forthcoming years and months. And uh, I think that there's so much that we can learn from each other.
0: So how about uh, why don't we turn now to talk a little bit about Europe? I mean, the European Medicines Agency, in particular, already re- relocated some time some time ago, right, from from the UK to to uh, the Netherlands to the continental Europe. Um, but you know that one. Change aside, you know, how would you describe what's happening with the life sciences sector in Europe, its regulation, and just any new key trends that you, you think are worth highlighting?
1: The way I would characterize it is that the life sciences uh, itself uh, has always been the focus of the uh, European legislatures, uh, policymakers such as the European Commission, and the national governments uh, uh, across all 27 Member states. Since, uh, for example, in 2002, uh, when the European Commission first developed the Green or White Paper, uh, focusing on the debate on how to make Europe an attractive place to invest in so far as the life sciences sector is concerned. And that uh, all the policymakers and the European um, legislature and the governments. Uh, have all agreed that the life sciences uh, should be considered the next wave of uh, knowledge economy, and um, the most importantly, that the, the sector will create opportunities for economic growth, um, improvement in the health outcomes, and um, at the same time, I think that um, uh, Europe is probably by comparison is probably the, the second largest uh, regional economy uh, for. Uh, for the healthcare sector. And um, we see a lot of transformational changes within the sector. Uh, globally, uh, um, medical technology, data, digital technologies are informing uh, and changing uh, the sector itself. And, and there's a growing area. And uh, digital health itself uh, as uh, an element, which is now the large medtech uh, uh, segment. And uh, artificial intelligence is increasingly uh, are becoming the focal point of debate uh, amongst uh, the legislatures. Uh, and uh, the growth in AI uh, has now increased by uh, double digits, for example, in the UK in the last uh, 45 years. And um, if you look at the, the way we regulate uh, medicines and uh, in Europe, over the last... Uh, Uh, 10 years, the therapeutic uh, drugs being uh, reviewed by the European Medicines Agency are largely uh, biological uh, and biotech products. And increasingly, for the last five years, we see increasing uh, number of applications being filed for the so-called advanced uh, therapies, uh, including gene and cell therapies, as well as tissue-engineered products which will uh, revolutionize uh, the the way we we treat uh, our patients. Um, uh, At the same time, we are focusing a lot more on uh, personalized, individualized therapies uh, by uh, developing more targeted therapies, uh, coupling uh, drugs or biologics with uh, uh, companion diagnostics. Uh, All those endeavors will change the way we manage patients. And uh, I think Europe, as a whole, and the European agency uh, will have to respond very, uh, positively to those external uh, changes um, and the external environments uh, to make the, the, the European system a lot more regionally competitive and uh, responsive changes. And uh, I think this conversation is very timely because uh, most recently the uh, European Commission and the uh, European Legislature... Uh, publish a, a roadmap, uh, which will shape the way that medicines uh, regulation will be developed in the in the next uh, five years. Most likely that there will be some uh, potential changes uh, in relation to the uh, uh, to the regulatory structure to make it more agile, more responsive to innovation. And um, one particular element which has um, created some problems in terms of uh, introducing novel therapeutics into national health system is a uh, uh, disparity in the, um, in the market access environment across all 27 member states. And uh, this is one area that the European Commission is very keen to uh, revisit and seeking to uh, harmonize the, the, uh, the health technology appraisal uh, process, uh, especially in terms of the data set underpinning the, uh, the cost-effectiveness assessment. So there's going to be a lot of changes within the, uh, the European system, and uh, uh, um, uh, the agency has already set uh, a number of priorities uh, focusing not only on better protection of public health and animal health, but also to make the, uh, the regulatory environment uh, more agile to, uh, 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 to adapt to external uh, environmental changes.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on that, and the European perspective and UK. I mean, I, I, over here as well, that changes is, is happening at a pace that's really mind-boggling. With digital health, with personalized medicine, companion diagnostics, and now companion diagnostics that themselves involve digital health and and artificial intelligence and machine learning is you know th- things that we're seeing emerging. So, you know, the, the regulatory systems and statutes and regulations really. Uh, we're not set up with with those kinds of things in mind, right? So uh, the the the, w- the ability to be flexible and and adapt and even stay on top of these uh, the, the knowledge of, of the technology and what's happening is is quite a challenge. Yes,
1: you're right about the need to adapt and innovate in order to respond to those technological innovations and the public health challenges. The legislation does not always keep in pace. Uh, with speed of innovation and science and technology. This is a real challenge for this highly regulated sector. In addition, the COVID-19 pandemic is placing enormous pressure on the global health sector's workforce, infrastructure, supply chain, and exposing social inequities in health and care. And COVID-19 is also accelerating change across the sector's ecosystem and forcing public and private health systems to adapt and innovate in a very short period. A number of basic shifts are arising from and being exacerbated by COVID. For example, um, uh, consumers increasing involvement in healthcare decision-making, the rapid adoption of virtual health and other digital innovations, the push for interoperable data and data analytics use and unprecedented public-private collaborations in vaccine and therapeutics development. Among those dynamics, governments, healthcare professionals, and providers, payers, and other stakeholders around the globe are being challenged to quickly pivot, adapt, and innovate. It strikes me agility is the key.
0: Yes, well... I could talk to you for hours, Lincoln, and I'm, and I'm sure we will talk for hours, and <laughs> we'll have many more opportunities to, to talk about developments uh, in in the United States, and Europe, and and in, in Asia and China with our colleague uh, Catherine Wong, and and I look forward to <clears throat> this is you know having so many more uh, chances to to serve our clients. And as you know, since you've joined us only not so many weeks ago, the demand for the the kind of cross border regulatory understanding is is absolutely tremendous. So. Um, we, we'll spend many more, many, many more hours on these issues, but for, for, for today's podcast, I think we'll, we'll have to, uh, to bring it to a close. But th- Thank you so much, Lincoln, for, uh, for taking the time and, and um, just so excited that, that you joined the firm.
1: Thank you very much for having me, and uh, it is, uh, is a
0: privilege to work with you again and also with our colleagues. Thank you very much, Lincoln, and thank you to our listeners. For more information on the topics that we've discussed today, please visit our website at www.rokesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of these topics, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can also subscribe to this podcast series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.